This is Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark MacDonald. In 1676, a man living in the Dutch Republic named Antony van Leeuwenhoek made his own microscope, more powerful than any that had come before. When looking at a drop of lake water, he saw, in his own words, little creatures that were above a thousand times smaller than the smallest ones I had ever yet seen upon the rind of cheese. These little organisms later became known as microbes, from the Greek words micros, meaning small, and bios, meaning life, small life. It was later discovered that microbes were involved in the process of food rotting. If you looked at good food beneath a microscope, there were very few little microscopic creatures crawling on it. But rotting food had a ton of them, so the greatest scientific minds of the time came up with a theory. When food gets old, little microscopic animals pop into existence, and they make the food rot. The idea of new animals popping into existence wasn't new. It was widely accepted since the days of Aristotle that rotting meat made maggots pop into existence, and old bread or cheese wrapped in cloth and left in a corner made mice pop into existence. Now, with the new advances in microscopy, there were even more animals that popped into existence that we had never even seen before. But almost 200 years later, in the 1850s, a man named Louis Pasteur came to the scene. Pasteur was very interested in beer and wine, specifically the process of fermentation, where plant sugars get turned into alcohol. Pasteur was a proponent of the germ theory of fermentation, which said that it was actually microbes that made the alcohol, and moreover, that the microbes do not spontaneously generate but are instead born from other microbes. The word germ means bud or sprout in Latin. Germ theory is the idea that new microbes do not pop into existence, but instead are born from existing microbes. It's the same with rats. They don't come from old bread or cheese. They come from other rats giving birth. Microbes follow the rules just like all other organisms, which is a good thing because we now recognize that microbes don't just cause rotting and fermentation but they're also the things that make us sick. So it's kind of a relief to know that the things that make you sick don't just pop into existence inside your body, but they have to invade it from the outside, which means that you can find ways to protect yourself. I want to focus on the two types of microbes that are most likely to make you sick, bacteria and viruses. Bacteria are about one-tenth the size of a human cell. Viruses are about a hundred times smaller than bacteria. In fact, a virus is so small that you can't even see it in an ordinary optical microscope. Today we're going to be talking about bacteria, the dedicated decomposers, and how to keep them outside your body. In the next episode, we're going to focus on viruses, the invisible assassins, and what happens when you get sick. But there's plenty of crossover between the two subjects, so if it makes you angry that I bring up viruses every now and then in an episode that's supposed to be about bacteria, just take several deep breaths and remind yourself that it will all be okay. So, bacteria. Bacteria come in many shapes and sizes. They can be shaped like a sphere, a cylinder, a comma, or a spiral. The smallest bacteria is only 200 nanometers in size, which is about the distance your fingernails grow in three minutes. The largest bacteria is big enough to see with your naked eye. It looks like a little white string. But that one is the exception rather than the rule. It's like the Godzilla of bacteria, so mostly we ignore it. All bacteria are just a single cell. That means they're made of DNA and also ribosomes, which are the machinery for reading the DNA. 
all bound together within a membrane. Often the membrane also has hairs on it that help the bacteria to attach to things, and sometimes a little tail that helps the bacteria propel itself. Bacteria don't have all the bells and whistles that animal cells have. For example, they don't have mitochondria. In fact, some bacteria are actually smaller than a mitochondrion. So where do they get their power if they don't have a powerhouse in their cells? The chemical reactions that take place in mitochondria happen on the bacteria's membrane instead. It's not as effective, but it doesn't need to be because the bacteria are so much smaller than animal cells. Except for that gigabacteria I mentioned earlier, it has different adaptations that I don't want to go into right now. Uh, but it just goes to show that for every rule, there's an exception. Here's how it's going to go for the rest of the episode. First, we're going to talk about good bacteria and the role of bacteria poop in making bread and beer. Then we're going to talk about bad bacteria and how to keep them out of your stomach. Then we'll talk about why your hands don't dissolve when you wash them with soap and water. And finally, the 10 second rule. Let's go. You probably think of bacteria as disgusting little monsters that contaminate your food if you drop it on the ground for more than 10 seconds. But first of all, the 10-second rule is ridiculous. And second of all, not all bacteria make you sick. In fact, your digestive system is chocked full of helpful bacteria. Also, it turns out that more than 50% of your poop is bacteria that were living inside your intestines and helping you digest your food. And a lot of them are still alive. Your poop is alive! And doctors can take advantage of this. Some diseases are caused by bad bacteria that get out of control in your intestines. And the way to solve it is to replace those with good bacteria. So what we can do is take poop from a healthy person, put it in a pill, and give it to a diseased person. Then, when the poop pill reaches the right place, the pill dissolves and the healthy poop bacteria are released to fight off the bad bacteria. By the way, this is exactly the same kind of thing that happens when you eat probiotic foods like yogurt, except yogurt only has one or two species of helpful bacteria, while poop pills have all of them. And this is just the beginning. There's a possibility that poop pills could help with a whole bunch of diseases, and even help with weight loss. But that's all still speculative at the moment. Poop pills have already been shown to work wonders, but surprisingly, they've been slow to catch on. It's like people are afraid of them or something. But now, if you ever see the headlines saying you can make $13,000 a year by selling your poop, you know what it's talking about. Oh, and I don't think I should have to say it, but... Don't try this at home. Some bacteria are also helpful for processing our food before we eat it. Earlier, I mentioned fermentation. Fermentation is when plant sugars get turned into alcohol. And how does it happen? Tiny little microbes eat the sugars and poop out the alcohol. Yes, if you ever drink alcohol, know that at some point it was probably pooped out by a bacteria. Or maybe a fungus. Yeast is a type of fungus, by the way. Oh, and also bread. The air bubbles that make bread light and fluffy are actually carbon dioxide produced by yeast as it eats the sugars in the dough. The yeast, and also bacteria if you're making sourdough, turn the sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Most of the alcohol evaporates when you cook the bread, but bread can easily contain up to 2% alcohol. Or if you let your dough rise too long, or if you don't cook it long enough and leave it doughy, you'll get a lot more alcohol and the bread might actually taste like alcohol. Actually, fermentation happens all the time in your digestive system. 
your body, or more accurately, the bacteria in your body, produce alcohol equal to a maximum of two alcoholic drinks every day. It's just doing, it's just your body doing what it can to get the most calories out of your food. But there's also a rare disease called auto-brewery syndrome, where your body makes way too much alcohol, sometimes enough to make a person drunk without ever actually drinking alcohol. Usually a person with this disease develops a tolerance for alcohol over time, but sometimes when they're very young, as in three years old, they'll get drunk just because they ate too much sugar. This disease is very, very rare, but it sure is interesting. I hope I haven't fooled you into thinking that all bacteria have your best interest at heart. There are a few types of bacteria that cause disease. If you get a cut in your skin, it might become infected. That's usually a bacteria. Or you might breathe in harmful microbes and get sick from it. But right now I want you to think about bacteria on the food you eat that get into your stomach and either give you diarrhea or stomach aches. Or they might even make you throw up. Have you thought about them? Okay, good. You can stop thinking about them because Louis Pasteur is here to save the day. Remember Pasteur and his germ theory? His germ theory said that bacteria don't just pop into existence but they grow from germs, or seeds, of other bacteria. This germ theory implies that you can prevent food from making you sick if you can kill off all the microbes, because then there will be no parent germs to have babies and spread in your stomach. Since microbes don't pop into existence, if you can kill off all of them, then you can keep your food safe. This was the birth of pasteurization or heating things up to a temperature that will kill off the microbes, and then keeping them in a sealed container so that new microbes can't get in. So pasteurized milk means they killed off the microbes in the milk so they can store it for longer without going bad. But when you open up the milk carton, you expose it to new microbes in the air. So if you buy two cartons of milk that say they expire on the same day, but open one immediately and don't open the other one until two weeks later, the one you opened first will go bad first because you've exposed it to bacteria from the air and they've had more time to work. Also, one final milk fact, in the US, milk is pasteurized, but that doesn't kill all the bacteria, only some of the more harmful ones. So a gallon of milk will spoil even if you don't open it because there are some bacteria inside it already. But other countries also have ultra-pasteurized milk, which kills a lot more of the bacteria which can survive outside the refrigerator for up to six months, or at least until you open it. This milk usually comes in boxes and tastes slightly different, though. I prefer the flavor of normal pasteurized milk enough to buy it over the stuff that lasts longer. By the way, pasteurized is different from pasture-raised. Don't get them confused. Being pasture-raised means they eat grass in the pasture, which is good for the cows. Being pasteurized means they heat the milk up to kill the germs, which is good for you. So, based on what we've talked about, consider the following. You go to the store and buy a nice big steak, but then when you get home, you mistake it for a box of cereal and put it in the cupboard instead of in the fridge like you're supposed to. But then, three days later, you look at it and say, that's not cereal, that's a steak. And so you plop it on the frying pan and start to cook it. So here's the question for you. Assume that cooking the steak kills off all the bacteria and other microbes that are on it. Is it safe to eat this steak that's been sitting out for three days? You killed off all the microbes when you cooked it, 
so there should be nothing on it that can make you sick, right? Wrong. Outside the fridge, the bacteria multiplied very quickly, but that's not all they did. They also produced toxins or poisons that stick around even after the bacteria are all dead. So if a food says it needs to be refrigerated, you have to refrigerate it. You can't just assume it will be fine if you leave it out and then cook it to kill off all the microbes. You can still get food poisoning from sterile food if the microbes had a chance to grow out of control at any point in time. So don't eat the steak. That's enough about nasty food. Now it's on to the next subject of the day. One of the most important ways for you to protect yourself from getting sick. You were probably taught how to do it in kindergarten at the very latest. You guessed it, it's by washing your hands. Wash, wash, wash your hands, let the bubble do the dance, scrub, scrub, scrub a dub, now you're in the clean hands club. And don't forget that, as they say up north, soap, water, and common sense are the best disinfectants. So don't go licking any doorknobs and use soap when you wash your hands. But here's a question for you. Does soap kill bacteria? You might have noticed that some soaps are labeled as antibacterial, so that stuff probably does kill bacteria. But what about ordinary soap? And does soap also kill viruses or just bacteria? And what's the deal with hand sanitizer? All these questions and more will be answered after a short background on molecular chemistry. So, molecules. Soap is made of molecules. So is water, by the way. Molecules can generally be divided into two groups, polar and nonpolar. Polar means molecules have more of an electric charge on one side of the molecule than the other. One bit gets a slightly positive charge and the other bit gets a slightly negative charge, where each of these bits is called a dipole. Dipole, two poles, polar, you see? Water is a good example of a polar molecule. Nonpolar molecules are molecules that are not polar, meaning neither side of the molecule has more charge. Oil and grease are both made of nonpolar molecules. Polar molecules like to stick to other polar molecules because the negative bit sticks to the positive bit of the other molecule, opposites attract and all that. That's why water is so good at dissolving things. Water is a very polar molecule, so it will dissolve just about anything polar. Why did the bear dissolve in water? because it was polar. However, things like waxes and oils are nonpolar, meaning water won't dissolve them. Oil and water don't mix, you know. That's because oil is nonpolar while water is polar, so they tend not to like each other. But you can fix that with soap. Let me tell you a couple things about soap. Soap has a polar end and a nonpolar end. You're trying to wash something oily off your skin, but it won't dissolve in just water. But when you add soap, the nonpolar end of the soap sticks to the nonpolar oil and surrounds it in what's called a micelle. That leaves the polar end of the soap sticking out and ready for the water to dissolve. What did one soap molecule say to the other soap molecule in prison? Get out! This is my cell. Soap acts as a middleman that lets the oil and water stick to each other, so the water can carry the oil away when you wash your hands. This is important because the oils in your hands are the home of a lot of bacteria. So with that background, here's some answers to the questions I asked earlier. Does soap kill bacteria? Yes, soap does kill bacteria, but it doesn't matter. Remember how I said earlier that bacteria and some viruses are made of stuff surrounded by a membrane? Yeah, the soap breaks open that membrane and kills them dead. Except it's kind of slow at doing this, 
so it usually never gets the chance to actually kill the germs. The main reason you should wash your hands with soap is because it helps remove the oils and dirt that the bacteria live on and that don't dissolve in water. Mice cells can also form around individual viruses and bacteria, unsticking them from your skin and letting them be washed off. This all happens too fast for the soap to kill most of the bacteria and viruses. But do you really mind if the bacteria you wash off your hands are alive or dead? The important thing is that they get off your hands. Hand sanitizers do not wash the bacteria off your hands. Instead, they just, just disrupt the membrane around the bacteria and kill them, just like soap would if it had enough time. But the problem is, not all bacteria and viruses have a membrane that can be disrupted like this. So soap and water are preferred over hand sanitizer, because soap and water work against everything. In fact, one study said that washing your hands with water, even without soap, is more effective than using hand sanitizer at stopping the spread of flu germs. But it kind of depends on how long you spend scrubbing at your hands. Don't rush it. Pretend you actually like not getting sick. What about antibacterial hand soap? Wouldn't that be even better than normal soap? It's true that soap labeled antibacterial has additional chemicals in it that kill bacteria. But as I said before, the main reason to use soap is to get the oils and microbes to slip off your hands, and killing them doesn't even matter as long as you do that. It's also unknown if antibacterial soaps are actually any better than ordinary soaps at killing bacteria, so in my opinion it's better just to use normal soap. What kind of insect can kill germs? A disinfectant. Here's a thought for you. The cells in your body have a membrane around them that's very similar to what bacteria have. So why doesn't your skin dissolve when you wash with soap and water? And hand sanitizer. If it kills bacteria by disrupting the membrane, won't it do the same thing to your, to your skin cells? Maybe you're thinking right now, obviously the answer is because skin cells are dead. You can't kill them because they're already dead. But no, the answer is much more interesting than that. Because even dead cells can dissolve. And I've tested it, skin doesn't dissolve in soap. And the reason it doesn't dissolve is because it has carrots in it. Oops, I read that wrong. It's because it's made of keratin. Keratin is a type of molecule called a protein, but not the kind of protein you can digest. Sadly, you cannot survive on a diet of human skin. Keratin is a strong protein that is good at keeping its structure. Your body takes a living skin cell and replaces all its insides with keratin. And after that's done, it finishes off by replacing the membrane. So it's not just that your outer layer of skin cells are dead. They were purposely turned into highly resistant bricks so that they could better protect your squishy insides. The outer layer of skin is made of keratin. So is your hair and fingernails. They just have stronger bonds between the keratin molecules, which makes them harder. Fun fact about hair, skin, and fingernails. When they get keratinized, it breaks up the DNA in the cells. So it's much harder to get DNA from skin, hair, or fingernails than from normal cells. Not impossible, just a lot harder, because the DNA is all broken up instead of in one piece. That's why when you want to get a DNA test, they have you either take a cheek swab or spit into a bottle, because the cells there are alive and don't have their DNA broken up. One more fun fact, your skin cells shed after about 14 days. The shedding of your skin is called desquamination. Okay, the last thing I'm going to talk about today is the 10-second rule. I'll start by saying this. Germs don't move very fast. 
If you touch something gross, you don't have to worry about the germs climbing up your arms. They're too slow for that. They're spread, they spread through your body by reproducing, not by physically moving. A bacteria that really, really wanted to, to would take about an hour to swim one foot. But their motion is almost never in one direction for that long, so they probably won't move that far in their entire life. Based on this information, and as you might expect, the 10-second rule is false. When you drop a piece of food on the ground, it is contaminated almost instantly. Any bacteria it is directly touching will get stuck to it, or maybe not, depending on what type of food it is. But the longer you leave it there, the more bacteria it gathers. So the idea behind the 10-second rule isn't totally wrong. How much it gathers heavily depends on what kind of food you dropped. Wet foods like watermelon gather a lot of bacteria, um, a lot more than dry foods like gummy bears. Bacon is somewhere in the middle. So, when you drop your piece of bacon on the floor, it's almost instantly contaminated. If you leave it on the ground, it will get more contaminated. I'm not saying that you shouldn't eat the piece of bacon, but I am saying you should spend 10 seconds weighing the potential gains against the risk of getting salmonella. Now, for the closing pun of this act, how many germs are there in Germany? Germ many. But no, no matter where you are, there are still many, many germs all around you. Some of them are beneficial, like the bacteria in your body that help you digest food, and the bacteria and yeast and bread that make it rise. Some of them cause disease, which is why milk is pasteurized to kill off the harmful bacteria. You can protect yourself from germs by washing your hands with soap and water. And this works because soap has a polar end and a non-polar end, which lets it dissolve things that water can't do on its own. And finally, there is no such thing as a king germ that makes them wait 10 seconds before jumping on a piece of fallen food. So if it touches the ground, rinse it off before you shove it in your mouth. Unless it's chocolate cake. That would just get soggy. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll be continuing with the discussion of germs, but with a focus on viruses and what happens when you get sick. Make sure to come back. Peace. This has been Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald.